0: Chapter Three, Part Four of Melmoth the Wanderer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin, Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Melmoth the Wanderer by Charles Robert Maturin. Chapter Three, Part Four. Such was Stanton's situation. He was enfeebled now, and the power of the enemy seemed without a possibility of opposition from either his intellectual or corporeal powers. Of all their horrible dialogue, only these words were legible in the manuscript. You know me now. I always knew you. That is false. You imagined you did. And that has been the cause of all the wild... Of the of your finally being lodged... IN THIS MANSION OF MISERY, WHERE ONLY I WOULD SEEK, WHERE ONLY I CAN succour YOU. YOU DEMON! DEMON? HARSH WORDS. WAS IT A DEMON OR A HUMAN PLACED YOU HERE? LISTEN TO ME, STANTON. NAY, WRAP NOT YOURSELF IN THAT MISERABLE BLANKET. THAT CANNOT SHUT OUT MY WORDS. BELIEVE ME, WERE YOU FOLDED IN THUNDERCLOUDS, YOU MUST HEAR ME. STANTON, THINK OF YOUR MISERY these bare walls what do they present to the intellect or to the senses whitewash diversified with the scrawls of charcoal or red chalk that your happy predecessors have left for you to trace over you have a taste for drawing i trust it will improve and here's a grating through which the sun squints on you like a step dame and the breeze blows as if it meant to tantalize you with a sigh from that sweet mouth whose kiss you must never enjoy. And where's your library, intellectual man, traveled man? He repeated in a tone of bitter derision. Where be your companions, your peaked men of countries as your favorite Shakespeare has it? You must be content with the spider and the rat to crawl and scratch around your flock bed. I have known prisoners in the Bastille to feed them for companions. Why don't you begin your task?' I have known a spider to descend at the tap of a finger, and a rat to come forth when the daily meal was brought to share with his fellow prisoner. How delightful to have vermin for your guests! Aye, and when the feast fails them, they make a meal of their entertainer. You shudder. Are you then the first prisoner who has been devoured alive by the vermin that infested his cell? Delightful banquet. Not where you eat, but where you are eaten.' your guests however will give you one token of repentance while they feed there will be gnashing of teeth and you shall hear it and feel it too perchance and then for meals oh you are daintily off the soup that the cat has lapped and as her progeny has probably contributed to the hell broth why not then your hours of solitude deliciously diversified by the yell of famine the howl of madness the crash of whips and the broken-hearted sob of those who, like you, are supposed, or driven mad by the crimes of others. Stanton, do you imagine your reason can possibly hold out amid such scenes? Supposing your reason was unimpaired, your health not destroyed, suppose all this, which is after all more than fair supposition can grant, guess the effect of the continuance of these scenes on your senses alone. A time will come, and soon, when, from mere habit you will echo the scream of every delirious wretch that harbours near you. Then you will pause, clasp your hands on your throbbing head, and listen with horrible anxiety whether the scream proceeded from you or them. The time will come when, from want of occupation, the listless and horrible vacancy of your hours, you will feel as anxious to hear those shrieks as you were at first terrified to hear them when you will watch for the ravings of your next neighbor as you would for a scene on the stage. All humanity will be extinguished in you. The ravings of these wretches will become at once your sport and your torture. You will watch for the sounds to mock them with grimaces and bellowings of a fiend. The mind has a power of accommodating itself to its situation, that you will experience in its most frightful and deplorable efficacy then comes the dreadful doubt of one's own sanity the terrible announcer that doubt will soon become fear and that fear certainty perhaps still more dreadful the fear will at last become a hope shut out from society watched by a brutal keeper writhing with all the impotent agony of an incarcerated mind without communication and without sympathy, unable to exchange ideas but with those whose ideas are only the hideous spectres of departed intellect, or even to hear the welcome sound of the human voice, except to mistake it for the howl of a fiend, and stop the ear desecrated by its intrusion. Then at last your fear will become a more fearful hope. You will wish to become one of them, to escape the agony of consciousness. As those who have long leaned over a precipice have at last felt a desire to plunge below, to relieve the intolerable temptation of their giddiness, you will hear them laugh amidst their wildest paroxysms. You will say, Doubtless those wretches have some consolation, but I have none. My sanity is my greatest curse in this abode of horrors. They greedily devour their miserable meals while I loathe mine. They sleep sometimes soundly, while my sleep is worse than their waking. They are revived every morning by some delicious illusion of cunning madness, soothing them with hope of escaping, baffling or tormenting their keeper. My sanity precludes all such hope. I know I can never escape, and the preservation of my faculties is only an aggravation of my sufferings. I have all their miseries. I have none of their consolations. They laugh. I hear them. Would I could laugh like them. You will try, and the very effort will be an invocation to the demon of insanity to come and take full possession of you from that moment forever. There were other details. Both of the menaces and temptations employed by Melmoth, which are too horrible for insertion, one of them may serve for an instance you think that the intellectual power is something distinct from the vitality of the soul, or, in other words, that even if your reason should be destroyed, which it nearly is, your soul might yet enjoy beatitude in the full exercise of its enlarged and exalted faculties, and all my clouds which obscured them can be dispelled by the sun of righteousness, in whose beams you hope to bask for ever and ever, now without going into any metaphysical subtleties about the distinction between mind and soul experience must teach you that there can be no crime into which madmen would not and do not precipitate themselves mischief is their occupation malice their habit murder their sport and blasphemy their delight whether a soul in this state can be in a hopeful one it is for you to judge but it seems to me that with the loss of reason and reason cannot long be retained in this place, you lose also the hope of immortality. Listen, said the tempter, pausing. Listen to the wretch who is raving near you, and whose blasphemies might make a demon start. He was once an eminent puritanical preacher. Half the day he imagines himself in a pulpit, denouncing damnation against Papists, Arminians, and even sublapsarians, he being a superlapsarian himself he foams he writhes he gnashes his teeth you would imagine him in the hell he was painting and that the fire and brimstone he is so lavish of were actually exhaling from his jaws at night his creed retaliates on him he believes himself one of the reprobates that he has been all day denouncing and curses god for the very decree he has all day been glorifying him for he whom he has for twelve hours been vociparating, is the loveliest among ten thousand, becomes the object of demonic hostility and execration. He grapples with the iron posts of his bed, and says he is rooting out the cross from the very foundations of Calvary. And it is remarkable that in proportion, as his morning exercises are intense, vivid, and eloquent, his nightly blasphemies are outrageous and horrible. Hark! Now he believes himself a demon! Listen to this diabolical eloquence of horror. Stanton listened and shuddered. Escape! Escape for your life! cried the tempter. Break forth into life, liberty, and sanity. Your social happiness, your intellectual powers, your immortal interests, perhaps, depend on the choice of this moment. There is the door, and here is the key in my hand. Choose! Choose! and how comes the key in your hand and what is the condition of my liberation said stanton the explanation occupied several pages which to the torture of young melmoth were wholly illegible it seemed however to have been rejected by stanton with the utmost rage and horror for melmoth at last made out begone monster demon begone to your native place even this mansion of horror trembles to contain you its walls sweat and its floors quiver while you tread them. The conclusion of this extraordinary manuscript was in such a state that, in fifteen mouldy and crumbling pages, Melmoth could hardly make out that number of lines. No antiquarian unfolding with trembling hands the calcined leaves of a Herculeanum manuscript, and hoping to discover some lost lines of the Aenus in Virgil's own autograph or at least some unutterable abomination of patronus or martial happily elucidatory of the mysteries of the spin-tree or the orgies of the phallic worshippers ever poured with more luckless diligence or shook a head of more hopeless despondency over his task he could but make out what tended rather to excite than assuage that feverish thirst of curiosity which was consuming his inmost soul the manuscript told no more of Melmoth, but mentioned that Stanton was finally liberated from his confinement, that his pursuit of Melmoth was incessant and indefatigable, that he himself allowed it to be a species of insanity, that while he acknowledged it to be the master passion, he also felt it the master torment of his life. He again visited the continent, returned to England, pursued, inquired, traced, bribed but in vain the being whom he had met thrice under circumstances so extraordinary he was fated never to encounter again in his lifetime at length discovering that he had been born in ireland he resolved to go there went and found his pursuit again fruitless and his inquiries unanswered the family knew nothing of him or at least what they knew or imagined they prudently refused to disclose to a stranger, and Stanton departed unsatisfied. It is remarkable that he too, as appeared from many half-obliterated pages of the manuscript, never disclosed to mortal the particulars of their conversation in the madhouse, and the slightest allusion to it threw him into fits of rage and gloom equally singular and alarming. He left the manuscript, however, in the hands of the family, Possibly deeming from their incuriosity, their apparent indifference to their relative, or their obvious inacquaintance with reading of any kind, manuscript or books, his deposit would be kept safe. He seems, in fact, to have acted like men who, in distress at sea, entrust their letters and dispatches to a bottle sealed, and commit it to the waves. The last lines of the manuscript that were legible were sufficiently extraordinary. I have sought him everywhere. The desire of meeting him once more is become as a burning fire within me. It is the necessary condition of my existence. I have vainly sought him at last in Ireland, of which I find he is a native. Perhaps our final meeting will be in... Such was the conclusion of the manuscript which Melmoth found in his uncle's closet. When he had finished it, he sunk down on the table near which he had been reading it, his face hid in his folded arms, his senses reeling, his mind in a mingled state of stupor and excitement. After a few moments he raised himself with an involuntary start and saw the picture gazing at him from its canvas. He was within ten inches of it as he sat, and the proximity appeared increased by the strong light that was accidentally thrown on it, and its being the only representation of a human figure in the room. "'Melmoth felt for a moment "'as if he were about to receive "'an explanation from its lips. "'He gazed on it in return. "'All was silent in the house. "'They were alone together. "'The illusion subsided at length, "'and as the mind rapidly passes "'to opposite extremes, "'he remembered the injunction "'of his uncle to destroy the portrait. "'He seized it, his hand shook at first, but the mouldering canvas appeared to assist him in the effort. He tore it from the frame with a cry half-terrific, half-triumphant. It fell at his feet, and he shuddered as it fell. He expected to hear some fearful sounds, some unimaginable breathings of prophetic horror. Follow this act of sacrilege, for such he felt it, to tear the portrait of his ancestor from his native walls. He paused and listened. There was no voice, nor any that answered, but as the wrinkled and torn canvas fell to the floor its undulations gave the portrait the appearance of smiling. Melmoth felt horror indescribable at this transient and imaginary resuscitation of the figure. He caught it up, rushed it into the next room, tore, cut, and hacked it in every direction, and eagerly watched the fragments that burned like tinder in the turf fire which had been lit in his room. As Melmoth saw the last blaze, he threw himself into bed, in hope of a deep and intense sleep. He had done what was required of him, and he felt exhausted both in mind and body, but his slumber was not so sound as he had hoped for. The sullen light of the turf fire, burning but never blazing, disturbed him every moment. He turned and turned, but still there was the same red light glaring on, but not illuminating the dusky furniture of the apartment. The wind was high that night, and as the creaking door swung on its hinges, every noise seemed like the sound of a hand struggling with the lock, or a foot pausing on the threshold. But, for Melmoth never could decide, was it in a dream or not that he saw the figure of his ancestor appear at the door? Hesitatingly as he saw him, at first on the night of his uncle's death, saw him enter the room, approach his bed, and heard him whisper, "'You have burned me, then.' But those are flames I can survive. I am alive. I am beside you. Melmoth started, sprung from his bed. It was broad daylight. He looked round. There was no human being in the room but himself. He felt a slight pain in the wrist of his right arm. He looked at it. It was black and blue, as from the recent gripe of a strong hand. End of chapter three, part four.